Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries and constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com. And this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gill at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Cass Sunstein, who is a university professor at Harvard University. He's the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy at Harvard Law School. In 2020, the World Health Organization appointed him as chair of its technical advisory group on behavioral insights and sciences for health. Welcome, Cass. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So uh, you have a you have a book out. Uh, it's entitled "Look Again: The Proof of Noticing What Was Always There." Uh, as I mentioned, Gas, I skimmed through the book. I really like the the concepts there. Um, and you you have a quote uh, at the beginning of the book, which I really liked. Um, it's by H. G. Wells, uh, and the quote is: "A thousand things that had seemed unnatural and repulsive." speedily became natural and ordinary to me. I suppose everything in existence takes its color from the average hue of our surroundings, um, which, which sort of summarizes what, what you're trying to accomplish in the book. And so before we get to the details of it, uh, Cass, do you want to uh, sort of summarize what the what the major concepts are in the book? Sure. Um, so there's a lot of work on humanity and psychology and behavioral economics and physiology, uh, but at least in the public domain, the most fundamental feature of all of our species has been widely neglected, and that feature of our species is that we habituate. So let's put in capital letters or let's put it in the sky, we habituate. And that means that we get used to things and stop noticing them. So if we're surrounded by, let's say, bad smells or ugly surroundings, the first day it's going to be, my gosh, it is terrible and smelly mm. and ugly. But after maybe three days, that's life. And the smells will be, you know, for most of us, a lot dampened down. And the ugliness will think, you know, that's that's OK. That's, I guess, how it looks here. And if there's something really beautiful, like you're near a mountain or on a beach uh, on day one, it is just astounding. I've gone to heaven and what a time we're <laughs> going to have. And then after a week or so, we actually have some science on this, but let's be a little approximate. After a week or so, it's nice. It's a mountain. It's a beach, but you're not bowled over by it. So show diminishing sensitivity to what is terrible. Um, it might be, you know, a, a boss who's mean, or it might be a healthcare system that's broken. And we show diminishing sensitivity that, to what is fantastic, including, regrettably, uh, our spouse. Yeah, so I think you talk about this in the book, Cass. So uh, from a neuroscience perspective, uh, there's sort of cognitive cost question, right? So the brain, I would imagine, is an optimizer. Uh, I mean, it, it's sucking up 25% of the energy into the into the human body, so it doesn't want to spend all that energy for things that it doesn't have. At least from a valuation perspective, it, it might not uh, might not want to do. 
And so anything repeating, if I understand this correctly, guess anything repeating, the brain is sort of going to fill in the gaps from previous experiences, right, in some ways? Completely. And so the brain is very attentive to surprise signals. So if you hear a very loud noise, if I just raise my voice suddenly, uh, everyone's brain would be on the alert. What's going on? Is he upset? Mm. Is he trying to make a point? Uh, but if I talk in this modulated way, there won't be any particular agitation. Uh, I hope there's attention, but not agitation. And it's co closely connected what you say, that the brain optimizes. And if you're, you know, in a society where things are relatively safe and there's something that's new and potentially a signal of danger, your, your brain will be really alert. If it's a smell, if it's a noise, if it's a roar, or if it's a cry for help, the brain will say, attention. But if it's the same as it's been, the brain will be on automatic pilot, even if the way it's been has been relatively not good or relatively good. And this is something we share in common with all other living creatures, including our very distant ancestors who only had one cell. They were the same in that respect. <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of um sort of physical sense, uh, just, just purely from an optimization perspective. Uh, but it has a downside, right, in some ways. Uh, that's that's part of what you're arguing in the book, right? Yes, yeah, so we could have written a book that was a poem, uh, a love poem to habituation, saying that this helps the brain to optimize, and it ensures that if things are really not that good, people can get used to them and not be horrified or miserable. So there's a blessing in habituation. We didn't write that book. We wrote a book which was a poem to dishabituation, emphasizing the downside of habituation by which people get used to and don't uh, notice things that are fantastic in their life, like, you know, a house that's a pretty good house or a street that's a pretty nice street or a tree that's outside or a child who, while sometimes difficult, annoying, is a blessing, it's a child, or uh, relative safety, or the fact that your parents are still around. So these things we take for granted, and we've habituated to them. We want, uh, Tali Sharat and I want dishabituation so that we can rejoice in the things we take as life's furniture, and we also want this habituation. So the things that aren't so good, it might be dirty air, it might be uh, a boss who's kind of mean, or it might be a city that doesn't work very well, so that we notice and don't take as background noise, something that really uh, could do with changing. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, this really makes sense to me, okay? So, I think you talk about this in the book, um, which is, you know, if you have some mental diseases like schizophrenia or ADHD or something like that, uh, then the brain is sort of processing information differently. Uh, but even without those diseases, um, there are people who who seek uh, change all the time. <laughs> they, they just don't like uh, repetitive type stuff. Uh, I don't know what percentage uh, of the population those people are, but there are people like that, I think, right? Yes. Yeah, so let's uh, make two kinds of distinctions. Thank you for this. This is very cool. Some people are exploiters and some people are explorers. And uh, nothing negative is meant by the term, though the mm -hmm. word exploiter isn't that lovely. Uh, exploiter means that the idea of a staycation is a great idea that the idea of going to a restaurant you know and like is very pleasing, that uh, the notion of doing something very different is a little worrisome, and an exploiter tries to exploit the existing stock of good things <laughs> in his or her life. Then there are explorers who want to do lots of different things and who are made very bored by the idea of a staycation and really want to try a new restaurant, a new vacation place, new things. Uh, explorers are highly likely to habituate quickly and then to get um, 
tired of the thing. Uh, exploiters are likely to habituate more slowly or at least to handle habituation with a smile rather than a snore. So that's one distinction, and I think we can all recognize ourselves. I am an exploiter. My wife is an explorer, and in public, she's a war correspondent and goes to a lot of different countries, and probably she's in the government now, and probably lots of people do well in their relationships if they find someone who's not quite the same as they are along that dimension. Uh, so that's a very important distinction. Also, what you say, right, that mental health challenges are often uh, defined by a difficulty in habituating. So people who struggle with depression or anxiety tend not to habituate as much. And that means if they get something that's a uh, reversal in life, uh, it, it hits them hard and not just momentarily, continuously. Whereas people who don't struggle with depression and habituate and anxiety, they tend to habituate more. And it's this is a startling thing that I learned, at least in the course of the book, that for all their diversity, mental health problems of very different kinds have a shared characteristic, which is uh, those who suffer from them uh, don't habituate so well. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of policy implications also, Cass. But before we go there, you know, I, I'm just then, uh, just thinking you know, from an evolutionary perspective, and we started off, let's say, like half a million years ago, I would imagine almost everybody was an explorer. <laughs> and then 10,000 years ago, we sort of settled down agriculture, staycation, as you say, uh, things have changed. So if, if you look at the population sort of cross-sectionally, do you think we are becoming more exploiters and less explorers over time? It's a fantastic question, and I'd love to see the data. So uh, I, I don't know the, the, the answer to that question. Um, it might be that in early days, let's say, of humanity, a mixture of exploiters and explorers was uh, good because if people were explorers, they wouldn't take care of their kids, maybe. You could uh, uh, speculate, it's only a speculation, that uh, women would be more likely to be exploiters and men would be more likely to be explorers. That kind of fits with some stuff. Uh, my own marriage uh, is evidence, or at least a data point to the contrary. Um, I'd be very careful about that speculation, but it, it's plausible. If you had a society in which everyone was an explorer or mm. if everyone was an exploiter, my dog, my dog is uh, <laughs> my own reaction to that, which is a a series of uh, incredulous barks that that it, it wouldn't work so good. Uh, I, I I I like your idea that there might be a movement toward greater exploitation and decreased exploration over time. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how to think about that. It is the case that the midlife crisis, uh, which yeah. As a first approximation, it occurs all over the world at uh, not the same age, but at roughly similar ages that people have midlife crises. It's reasonable to think that that's a product of profound habituation, which mm -hmm. leads the person in midlife, unlike the person who's 20 or 30, who is not going to habituate, is going to think the world could be anything. That can be terrifying, but it's certainly not going to be steady state uh, depression. And someone maybe in their 70s or something might think, I'm retiring now, and what's life going to be? And that leads to dishabituation. Yeah, I found that midlife crisis data quite interesting, Gaz. Uh, so I think you have a chart in there, I can't quite remember, that different countries uh, experience this, uh, what we call midlife crisis at different ages. And I wondered what, what is causing that. Uh, it, 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 do you see some sort of religious aspect to it? What, what, is, what is your conjecture there? Uh, I'm uh, very careful to avoid a conjecture on something like <laughs> in particular, which is um, knowable. I'll say that is to say, if we got really rigorous, we could probably figure it out. Uh, I, I, I say with a degree of confidence 
that the unit unifying characteristic of the midlife crisis across different nations, even with different age ages, sometimes 50s, sometimes 60s, is uh, habituation, which has a deadening effect for people. Um, I want to investigate the relevant cultures to think if in some cultures at their 50 in their 50s, people, let's say, uh, are fine, but their horizons are very limited and their lives are extremely steady. And that's uh, then life is gray. And in, in other countries that that happens. So I am contrary to my inclination speculating here in other countries. It, it's at a somewhat later stage where the uh, chance of novelty and um, surprise uh, diminishes. That, that that's consistent with the thesis of this part of the book that that if, if you stare at certain colored objects and we actually have one in the front flap of the book the hardcover mm -hmm. of this that you if you stare at certain objects that have colors and if you stare too long the colors are going to disappear all you're going to see is gray and that's profoundly revealing about if you just stare at a single thing it's just going to turn gray and it, it might even be your life if you keep staring at it mm -hmm. Yeah, as you said, there's a horizon problem here. So so I'm speculating here, Cass. So I'm not an academic. So <laughs> uh, so there's a horizon problem. So if, you, if your lifespan is quite long, um, I would imagine your midlife crisis comes in later. So it will be interesting, Japan, you know, some country like that, uh, how it changes there. The other thing I, I thought about is it's sort of a societal structure. So if there is a... There's a safety net, you know, either from a family or societal perspective, then your crises might <laughs> might happen a little later. Uh, so it's quite interesting. We could look at the US where we sort of at one extreme of the spectrum where almost everybody is for himself or herself nowadays. Uh, it's almost there's no safety net. Um, and so I, I I don't remember the data, uh, Cass. So when does U.S. stand on the spectrum of when the midlife crisis, as you say, actually happens? Uh, I don't remember the exact year, but we're not an outlier on the year. We're where a lot of nations are, um, kind of where you would you would think. Um, something that bears on what you're saying. Let's get some data points where we have hard evidence. Uh, Forty-three hours into a vacation is the time when people tend to like the vacation best. That's when they're happy. <laughs> okay. If you're on vacation for, let's say, 10 days, it's not as if the remaining seven, eight days are going to be bad, but, th but they're not the peak. And th th that's revealing because in the first two days, you're not habituated. It's, it's beautiful. It's sunny. There are trees that are amazing and everything is full of color and light. And then afterwards, it's just a little grayer. And, and and that's a, a little bit properly understandable, I think, as a metaphor for how many lives go, where the 43 hours in might be, you know, your 30s, and the eighth day of a vacation might be your 50s or 60s, when everything's a bit grayer. Now, mm -hmm. it can be fine if it's if it's gray but nice, but if it's like there's no sense of surprise, then that's deadening to people. And one of the goals of our book is to think of what we can do to uh, enliven the person who's plenty happy enough, but doesn't see colors anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a, there's a diminishing returns, generally speaking, there's diminishing returns to repeating information coming into the brain. Uh, and there's, uh, as you say, there's a neuroscience um, background to it. Uh, but it, but it might also be a larger issue. So I was wondering, you know, is, there, is it possible for us to sort of reset the brain? <laughs> so you go there, you go to a vacation, and you're going there for a week, and then three days later, you know, your interest is sort of diminishing. Maybe there is some sort of thing that you can do to reset your brain and enjoy it more. Completely. So an improbable hero of the book, improbable in the sense that we didn't expect that this person would be, uh, you know, front and center of the book is the, the actor Julia Roberts, who yeah. was, was a terrific actor and also 
understands a lot about psychology, including her own, as witnessed by the fact that in an interview while we're writing the book, she was asked, what's a perfect day? She said, the perfect day for me, says Ms. Roberts, is I wake up and I make breakfast for my kids and then I take them to school and then I get go home. Then I start thinking about lunch with my husband. I'm going to have lunch with my husband. And then after that, I have to start thinking about taking my kid, picking my kids up from from sports practice. Then she cuts herself off. She <laughs> said it's boring. That's <laughs> my job because I'm an actor. I go away for a few weeks and if and then I come back and when I come back, it's uh, surrounded by pixie dust. It resparkles and that's fantastic. So she, because she, her job takes her away, she comes back and it doesn't seem gray anymore. It's, it's full of color. And that's true, we can do that. So if you're doing, let's say, a, a task that isn't a lot of fun, maybe you're cleaning up some room, uh, the intuition suggests break it up, do it in a few different stages. Um, intuition's not right for most of us, because if you do it, you'll habituate to it as you go. And by, you know, let's say the second hour, it's not a lot of fun, but the unpleasantness is is muted, it's gray, it's not uh, a horrible blaring red, and you go through. So if we can enlist habituation and motor through the not good tasks, but for the things that are good, to break them up is a really good idea. So uh, for vacations, if you can afford it, instead of taking one of let's say two weeks to take three of three or four days and maybe they won't be so far away because maybe the plane's too expensive but they'll be shorter and you gear up for it and you're all excited about it and then you have that uh, initial amazingness and for uh, in the workplace some employers are alert to this and they ask people to rotate into different jobs yeah and, and there's something in the federal government, I've worked in the federal government, where people are detailed, let's say, from the Environmental Protection Agency, the White House, then they come back to the Environmental Protection Agency and it resparkles, it has pixie dust. So we can do this kind of imaginatively, even in our own heads, as well as in our own lives. I don't know if you've had dreams sometimes where they're nightmares and you've lost a loved one in, in the nightmare. We all sometimes, and then you wake up and you have a feeling of relief and gratitude and, you know, the preciousness of the person whom you found a moment ago that you lost. And that uh, is very revealing because what the dream does is it forces you to dishabituate and not to take for granted something that just seems, you know, steady as she goes. Yeah, so I was thinking the commercial sense. Uh, you mentioned this, Castle. I was thinking, um, you know, Fortune 500 companies nowadays are largely sort of manufacturing companies. Even if they're in services, people go there eight to five and they do something very, very repetitive. Um, I'm, I'm arguing. <laughs> uh, and so is there sort of an optimum explorer to, um, what's the other one? Uh, there are explorers and there are explo exploiters. Exploiters. Is there an optimum ratio between the two in a in a large commercial company, or even the government sense in White House or someplace? Okay, that's a great question. So let me think about it. Um, you you want okay. So I've known people who've gone into the U.S. government without experience, who are so creative. They're the equivalent of explorers. They're just going to this uh, possibility and that possibility, and they're full of life and light, and they're sometimes clueless and impractical. <laughs> then I've known people also in the US government who they've been there for a long, long time. Uh, they completely know what to do. They're the professional's professional. They're a safe pair of hands and they have no creativity or originality. Mm. And so they're a little bit the equivalent of the ex exploiters. They're, they're just on staycation. And, and then the explorers are a little dangerous, but they also might be brilliant and come up with something 
that makes you know the Department of Transportation work better than it ever has in some in some way. Um, yeah, and certainly certain professions. Uh, my daughter's an OBGYN. Uh, certain professions in me like medicine, for example, you don't want too many explorers. <laughs> um, you know, things are fairly standardized, and you have to follow. Uh, you know uh, what is out there, but the other there's some other industries. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. If I may, thank you for that. Yeah. So uh, on medicine, there are often standard operating procedures you want people to follow, of course. I was talking to uh, a dentist and a dermatologist, two doctors uh, in connection with this book, and both of them said, you know, we need, we doctors need to dishabituate because mm -hmm. if dealing with a patient who's, you know, the 700 person we've dealt with with this problem, we won't see them afresh. They'll be gray, which might not mean that we'll make a bad medical choice, but mm -hmm. it will mean they'll have that that person who has like a skin problem or who needs to have a cavity filled, they're going to have a bad experience. And so both of them said independently that they uh, 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 are intrigued by the idea of habituation and dishabituation in medicine, and they think doctors need to dishabituate, not to explore, but to see something afresh rather than this is the, you know, the 10,000th time we've seen this. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, it's not only in a company, could I ask what sort of the optimum ratio between the two, you could also ask in a profession, sort of what's the optimum ratio, um, it doesn't look like optimum is never zero or hundred. Uh, there, there's sort of an optimum point there between the two skill sets or two attitudes or what we want to call it, right? So that that has a lot of that has a lot of implications for education too, right? So do, uh, do educators really think about this? They need to. So this is why the book is, is such a joy. To, was a joy to produce and is a joy to think about because it's it's almost absent from discussions. So one focus might be on in, individual well-being. So if you have someone who is just a habituated person, that person is going to see no colors in the world and uh, won't enjoy his or her job, his marriage, or her marriage might be tedious, and it might be a world without uh, uh, pixie dust. So that's a problem. Um, in in the workplace, I think, in the United States for sure, and probably more in many other countries, uh, we need to ramp up dishabituation in order to improve per people's experience of their work. And uh, I've seen that in the private sector, I've seen it in academic life, and definitely in the government, where ramping up dishabituation is, the in, is in the interest of all of us. Mm. Maybe not an adolescent, maybe an adolescent is just all dishabituated and they need a little more um, gray. Structure, yeah. Yeah, uh, you're raising a, a separate but really important point, which is if you want people to perform well, uh, what should you do? Uh, do you want more in the way of habituation so that people are seeing gray, or do you want them to dishabituate so that the world is full of surprise and color? I think it kind of depends. So one question is whether you want creativity. If people, mm -hmm. there's data suggesting if people stand up and walk around a little bit, they're likely -er to have new ideas. And that's because they're out of their stasis and the, the movement uh, uh, make, has a trigger in the brain that things are going are different. Don't, don't be an automatic pilot, uh, innovate. And uh, a hero of the book, in addition to Julia Roberts, is Dick Fosbury, the high jumper, who invented yeah. the Fosbury flop. And the Fosbury flop was a completely new way of doing the high jump. And everyone thought at the time that it was ridiculous and uh, strange and doomed. Uh, but Fosbury was able to um, dishabituate. He, he, he was not a, 
uh, someone who was an experienced high jumper who was stuck in his ways. He was able to see things from the side. And if you think of actually literally in this case, he jumped sideways. But if if you think of the, the great innovators, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, my collaborator, Richard Thaler, who's, if anyone is the inventor of behavioral economics, it's Dick Thaler. And he's he's the Dick Fosbury of economics in the sense that he, and he doesn't habituate. It's just not his nature. <laughs> he's a contrarian. And so if you want advances in high jumping or economics, we have two fields, you you need people who are not going to go along the set path. Now, if you have someone who's in some professions, I'm a lawyer myself, and there are some domains of law where you want someone just to be a complete master of the law and to be able to wheel it out. And, and for that person, habituation might be just fine. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more efficient. So, you know, in some sense, going broad versus going deep uh, in some ways. Uh, so, so the other point that you make in the book, Cass, is this, this thing about people believing things that they hear over and over again. And, and, and this, is, this is very relevant as we get into the presidential election cycle here. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm pretty sure the, the politicians have figured this out, um, you know, or the, or the advisors have figured this out. So that there is some sort of a mechanism there that it doesn't matter if what you're saying is true or not. You just have to say it many, many times before a large number of people will believe you, right? Completely. So uh, it's sometimes called the illusory truth effect, and it's well known. It's that if you hear something a bunch of times, you'll tend to believe it's true. And that's because the more you hear it, the easier it is to process. And we have a, uh, a little heuristic in our mind, which is the more familiar it is, the more likely it is to be true. And th that's probably not the more worst heuristic in the world, that if you're in a society in which people keep telling you, uh, go, don't stay there because there are lions and tigers, and you think, I guess I shouldn't, the chance that you shouldn't go to that possibly lion and tiger ridden place, that, that's too high. Stay away. Um, should I do something about the background noise? Can you hear it? Uh, no, it's fine. Okay, give me just one sec. I'm going to close the door. I'll be right back. Okay. okay. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, sure. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we were talking about sort of repetition of messages and, and how people start to believe it, regardless of the veracity of it. So this goes back to sort of the neuroscience question again, which is the brain is um, storing some information from previous experiences and exchanges. It might have added some value to it. Maybe the first time it hears it, say it's not necessarily true, but I'm going to add between zero to 100, I'm going to add five points to it. And then I hear it again and again and again. Then that value goes up. At some point, brain say this, this has to be true. I mean, I hear it so many times. It has to be true, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's less, I think, deliberative than that and more automatic than that. That if you hear something 17 times, it's extremely easy to process. And therefore, yeah. you believe it's true because it's processed so quickly. And that can be so of, it can be induced experimentally just by telling people something repeatedly and seeing if they end up believing it a week or two later versus telling them the relevant thing once. And it turns out the illusory truth effect, which is the more things are repeated, roughly, the more people tend to believe them, is uh, is found among every demographic group. It's found among well-educated, not so well-educated, wealthy, less wealthy, young and old. There's only one group that doesn't show it, and it's people who have some Alzheimer's or something like it, which shouldn't be surprising because they don't remember. And then it, so it isn't easier to process. There's yeah, there's yeah. a 
there's a related phenomenon which is also concerning. I find these findings extremely engaging as well as concerning. Uh, and of course, the ease of processing leads to a belief in truth is, is like habituation. We don't struggle against it. We're habituated to that apparent fact. If I told you something false, uh, let's say I'll tell you something false right now. Tom Brady is not the greatest quarterback in history. <laughs> yes, that's clearly false. I'm a little ashamed of myself even for repeating that statement, which is both false and sacrilege in my household. But let's just say Tom Brady is not the greatest quarterback in football. And I told you in real time that it was false. Um, everyone who hears something like that will in some part of their brain for a while think Tom Brady, I guess, isn't the greatest quarterback in the history of football, even though I told you in real time that it was false. So if people say X and say X is not true. In fact, X is false. The brain will associate X with truth just by virtue of the fact that it was said. And this is uh, uh, fluent processing equals neurologically truth. And you have to work, work pretty hard to end up thinking something that isn't easy to process is false. Yeah, so it's a cognitive cost question again. And, and you talk about social media in your book, uh, Kat. So, you know, I was thinking, what is the sort of the more sophisticated modern social media? And I was thinking, I don't think this is going to happen. Uh, you know, whenever somebody says something, you state the hypothesis, you state the null hypothesis, you show some data, and you say, this is why you reject the null and accept the alternative. Uh, essentially, apply a scientific process anytime, anytime you say something, um, but then it, it requires a uh, little bit more educated population, right? So do you see any alternative to that, um, the social media issue that <laughs> we are currently going through? This is great. Thank you. There's so much to say about social media. So I'll, I'll give you just a little bit of data, which is, I think, in some ways very encouraging. Across a large population, people are asked, how much would you demand to give up TikTok or Instagram? People say real money. I'm not going to give up use <laughs> of the money. But then they're asked, how much would you pay, uh, have to be paid to give up the use of TikTok and Instagram uh, contingent on everyone else giving up it, it also. That is, if everyone else give it up also, then how much mm. would you demand? And a lot of people in response to that question say, oh, in that case, I'd pay you. <laughs> if, 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 if we can get rid of TikTok or Instagram, I'll pay you. Which is suggestive that people want to use TikTok and Instagram, a lot of people, only because other people are using TikTok and Instagram and they don't want to miss out. So I regard that as encouraging because people are aware, many of them, young people, that TikTok and Instagram are not good. They wish they didn't exist. But given their existence, they say, are you kidding? I get off it when everyone else is on it. I'm not going to do that. So, so, so that's a phenomenon. Uh, there's also the problem of disinformation transmitted on social media, and uh, that is something that could be managed better than it is now. Um, uh, the, the book is about humanity and not public policy, but it offers some clues that if you say, for example, false after you say something, that won't hurt and could help a little. It won't help enough because some part of the brain will think, oh, I guess I heard that. Was it also said to be false? I don't quite remember. So things that are damaging and unquestionably false, let's say, um, something about public health maybe, where there's a controversy uh, to take it down might save lives. Yeah, so a lot of things are going through my uh, my brain, <laughs> okay, so, um, this is not in your research, and I was thinking that there might be a market for truth, right? So truth has a lot of societal value. Um, falsehood has a lot of negative value. So suppose there's a mechanism, some sort of a market for truth, and you basically start paying people 
for telling the truth and essentially you know deduct <laughs> a negative payment uh, for for telling non-truth i wonder if we can move to a better society um i'm just throwing it out for your reaction okay great uh, we have a gentle uh research project, uh, which is discussed in the book, which uh, my co-author actually did, where people were asked to click not on liking, but on trusting. Mm. So you click trust. And it turned out that clicking trust, and I think she had clicking don't trust also, I don't remember exactly, but that doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is that the trust click worked much better than the like trick, mm. trick, uh, uh, click in promoting circulation of truthful materials. So to have innovation about clicking to incentivize, as you're saying, the truth, uh, that should work. We, we don't do that. No social media company, to my knowledge, does that. It would yeah. be really easy to have a trust button. Oh, that'd be, that'd be really easy and be really interesting. It'd be a really interesting social experiment uh, in many ways, but you know, if you look at the large social media companies, maybe there's enough economics there, right? So uh, the reason they have this billions of people on it um, is that they're just saying stuff. Uh, they, they love the freedom, it looks to me, that they can say anything they want, basically, right? So there's no truth. I mean, truth, having some sort of truth button is a cost. <laughs> and so, you might you might start losing subscribers if something like that happens, I would imagine. Yes, they all do have codes that are um, uh, built on the basis of engagement with multiple people, including academic researchers. And so if you look at Meta's code on Facebook in particular, there are restrictions on what can be said, and there are restrictions on falsehoods also. Uh, I think the category is imminent harm, and uh, you know anyone who runs a company or who believes in freedom would be cautious about saying that falsehoods that create harm can be stopped. But anyone I think who runs a company and is concerned about harm would think there are some things where, you know, if you're trying to convince someone to engage in self-harm in a one-on-one -on -one setting, something like that, or trying to advertise a product as uh, a cancer preventer, where if you take the product, you're gonna get really sick the next day. That's, these are things which are regulated. And it, some of them are regulated, not just by putting a falsehood notice on them, but they're just taken down. Yeah, so, so I know that those things exist. Those are extreme cases, you know, somebody threatens somebody or something like that. I know that algorithm uh, picks those things up, but. The, the larger issue for society is sort of the subtle falsehoods. <laughs> uh, so, so you keep saying things, you know, uh, one way or the other, and then large number of people read it and they start to believe it, as you say in the book. Uh, and then it becomes a phenomenon in itself. And we, I believe we have a big threat to democracy. Uh, you, you don't you don't really talk about this in the book in detail, but you know, uh, of the 330 million people that we have, about 50,000 voters in five states are going to make the make the election happen <laughs> next year. And uh, it's very easy to find them, target them, give them information, keep giving them information. And I'm sure both political parties um, are are on to that task. Um, but let me, let me put the light on if I yeah. may. Yeah. So, and during our talk, the sun's gone down a little bit, so. But we have technology, sure. so we can put on the light. With my very high tech office, I can get a light. <laughs> um, if, if, think, so, what the right policy approach is to misinformation is uh, an an urgent question. And offhand, it's right to say both that freedom is a defining value and that there are some forms of misinformation that are um, imminently very harmful. And our First Amendment tradition is recognizing both of those points. So if you try to solicit 
criminal activity, you can't do that. If you perjure yourself, you can't do that. If you lie to the FBI, you're in trouble. If you lie trying to get government employment about your background, uh, you're not allowed to do that. So the, the, the striking the right balance there is urgent. Uh, I think something to add is that because of how the human mind works, the likelihood that people will believe repeated falsehoods is higher than one would expect. And the reason is um, familiarity is heuristically associated with truth and that there's a heuristic that if someone says something, data suggests we have a heuristic which is probably right. So if you go outside and someone says it's raining, you better it's about to rain, you better get an umbrella. You don't think that person's trying to fool me. And if you ask for directions in a town, how do I get to the gas station? You won't think on average they're trying to send me on a wild goose chase. And the fact that we have a heuristic that when we're told something, it's true, makes it very easy to tell people things that you know aren't self-evidently false, but that are self uh, self-serving or profoundly destructive and and that challenge uh meeting that challenge with an eye toward this uh the science of how the human brain works uh is let's just say it's a work in progress yeah so um then you can bring ai into this uh gas so uh, i think slovakia just recently had an election and you know they had a really good ai thing going on there uh, uh, to fool people, and uh, I, I think I think we're going to have a great drama in the U.S. in the next nine months, um, and that makes it even more difficult, right? I mean, we we, we talk about humans being not truthful, but we could unleash machines onto this problem, and I don't know where that will end. Yes, and exactly how to handle that is. Uh... A really deep question. A lot of people are thinking about it. Uh, the only thing I'd emphasize is that to try to handle it without an understanding of habituation is uh, essentially impossible. That um, uh, if the human brain gets a surprise signal, it's on the alert. And if the human being doesn't get a surprise signal, it's steady as she goes. And it may be that there's no surprise signal when you hear something that's uh, very dangerous to your own well-being. And, and that, that's a problem. Yeah, so the surprise signal. Um, I mean, I, I'm just thinking aloud here, okay, so I haven't really thought through this. So the surprise aspect of the signal should have some correlation to truth or falsehood, right? Or is that too much, too much of a stretch? Well, let, let me give you a little very specific data on this that, that we have. Um, uh, my co-author got a bunch of people in an experiment in which the people were told this is something where you can make some money if you cooperate with your teammate. So it's a game of cooperation. You cooperate, you make money. And then one team member is told, actually, you can make more money if you lie. If you lie to your teammate, you'll make more money. And here's what, and the question is, what would happen to the people who are incentivized to lie? Uh, they lied. They made more money and they lied uh, to a stranger who wasn't lying to their best friend, but they, they did lie. Uh, the intriguing part is when they first lied, the amygdala in their brain was on fire. The amygdala, which let's say roughly is associated with certain kinds of strong emotions, they were lying and their brain was rebelling, telling them, no, don't do it. <laughs> Second lie it was telling them a quieter no, no. Then the third lie, the amygdala was quieter still. And by the end of the day, the amygdala was completely inactive. As people were lying, they were habituated, uh, desensitized to their own lie. And this happened among lo a large number of people 
in the experiment, large not like a thousand, but large like not two. And that's suggestive that if people engage in immoral conduct, their own initial reaction for most of us will be profound agitation in the brain, but there will be desensitization. And that that's classic uh, habituation. I, I had a friend a number of years ago who cheated on his taxes. And every time he would tell me this around April, I would be shocked. I'd be appalled. I, you know, we just talk about it as if it was uh, normal. And I, he wasn't, to my knowledge, a cheat in other aspects of life. Tax cheating was for him uh, like these people in the experiment. He'd done it so many times, he wasn't even embarrassed about it. Whereas in, in my little culture, uh, you know, among my peer group, cheating on your taxes is really taboo and the amygdala is on fire. <laughs> but, but this is a point that if you lie a lot, you will be desensitized to your own lying. I think it's a good inference that if you're surrounded by lies also, you will desensitize to the lying. That if, you know, if your boss lies a lot or if your friend lies a lot or if your government lies a lot or if your government is corrupt, you will be desensitized to it. Just like Julia Roberts didn't desensitize to her family because she went away. Yeah, so so this explains. I mean, there are a lot of politicians nowadays um, who apparently lie a lot, and it, it might be that they don't really understand anymore. I mean, there, there's no there's no mechanism in their brain that is telling them this is probably not a good thing to do. That part is sleeping, and so for them, this is actually normal behavior. I mean, they, they're asking, "What's wrong with what I'm doing?" I mean. If I'm surrounded by those types of people too, as you say, <laughs> then I am more desensitized into the issue. Um, yeah, so it's very problematic from a political perspective, I would say. Completely. So on, on vacation, when people are asked what they like best, what was the best part? It's the, the first. The word the first appears a lot. So it's the first time I saw the beach, the first time I saw the hotel. Uh, the first time I saw the pool, if people are lucky mm -hmm. enough vacation that has those characteristics, the first. And it's because the first is, uh, you know, it's it's blue and green and red. It's unbelievable. And then the second is very, very nice. And then the tenth is a little gray. And the same is true for immorality. So if you have someone in business, let's say, or politics who lies, um, uh, it's a reasonable hunch to say the first time they did, they were, uh, you know, ashamed of themselves. And then after a while, um, it's it's like uh, you've been on vacation a really long time. <laughs> yeah, so there could be some technology gas. I know I, I haven't really thought through this. So, so you know, in, in an interview, for example, uh, suppose I get somebody to wear an instrument. Uh, while I ask that person questions. And that instrument is sort of measuring the brain activity. I would imagine you, we can actually tell if that person is lying or not, right? I mean, that technology should already be out there. Well, it's a, it's a, I want to consult my neuroscientist uh, collaborator. <laughs> of course, there are lie detector tests and you can measure certain things. I'm going to speak as a amateur on this. Uh, it's said that accomplished liars uh, can beat the, the relevant tests. Yeah. Uh, let's just stipulate without knowing that that's true. If so, we have now a theory of why, which is that there that the physiological accompaniments of lying, let's say raised heartbeat, a little sweating, uh, some things that are indicative of stress, aren't uh, registering because they aren't present and they're not present because people have habituated to their own. Uh, yeah, so so I was I was thinking more about your hypothesis that the amygdala, you know, uh, initially it's very active, the first lie and then progressively decline. So if I look at a person and the amygdala is not at all active, that would be a very strange situation, right? I mean, it should always be active when you say something, I think. 
Well, okay, so habituation is decreasing sensitivity to a stimulus. So if you have a married couple, both members of the couple are completely amazing. They're not that excited about each other anymore. It's because as the therapist Esther Perel says, fire needs air. So if you have people who are you know, tightly together all the time, there's no air, so there can't be fire. Mm. Uh, that's a form of habituation in romantic life. If people are, are in a beautiful place and they cease to notice that they've been there six weeks, it's because it's turned gray. Um, people are liars by profession. Let's say that they are uh, selling a product that doesn't work and it's their job to do that, or uh, the market doesn't punish their uh, saying things that are false about automobiles they're selling or something. Um, they will be like the people in our experiment. They're they're going to habituate. So the amygdala isn't on fire anymore. It's people will be treating their own lies the way that non-liars treat their own truths. Right. And, right, right. And, and that's uh, and there are a lot of uh, lessons I think that follow from that, which is that we want people not to li start lying. We want them to stop lying quick. <laughs> yeah, so for the brain, lies become the truth, is what you're saying. So you can only really measure activity and say the person is lying or not, because the brain is basically saying, yeah, this is the normal. And, you know, no I don't particularly care. Yeah. The brain is not registering a surprise signal, so th that's that's the key. That uh, when you you know first are dating someone with whom you fall in love, there's constant surprise signal. When you start a new job that you like, oh my gosh, surprise signal. If you register, if you lie, let's say because you've been incentivized to, or the situation calls for it, you think uh, surprise signal. I lied. <laughs> if you've done it a hundred times, it, it's not as if you don't know that it's a lie, but the fact that it's a lie is no longer exciting to you. Yeah, I wonder, uh, Cass, I, I have no data on this. Uh, at some point, the person would start to think it's not a lie because you have no feedback mechanism in the brain. Say, so go out there and say, you know, something. And the brain will say, yeah, that's fine. I mean, that that looks like what you said before. And you know. my speculation is that the, the brain, the prefrontal cortex will know it's a lie, but the amygdala will be uninterested in that fact. So this is uh, what we call casual empiricism, which is to say anecdotes. My friend, the tax cheat, he knew he was a tax cheat. He didn't not know that. <laughs> it just didn't yeah. bother them. So, so in conclusion, do you want to do you want to leave uh, a thought? Um, I think we talked about a lot of different things. Um, the ideas appear uh, very, very interesting. Um, I'm interested in some of the policy implications here, uh, Cass. Uh, do you see any any sort of things that we can do to make? I mean, we talked about social media, which is a big issue. We talked about you know politics, which is becoming a bigger bigger issue. So do you have some policy ideas you want to need? Workplace policies that if there's any idea to retain, it's resparkling that in one's job, there are probably fantastic things that one doesn't notice, uh, just that is one at one's home. So to take a break, even an imaginative break even, and to ask uh, what it would be like if I started this very activity today, how lucky would I feel? That's that's uh, an inroad to the world of dishabituation. Taking a break is quite important. Um, I think, I mean, for half a million years, people uh, home savings didn't have the, the luxury of taking a break, uh, but now we may have. At least some of us may have lectured. Yeah. And but taking a break could sort of reset you. Yes. And it's not to rest. This is a dishabituating rest rather than a sleeping rest. It could be, you know, something that you take a day away from your work 
because you get a day off and then you come back and you see, whoa, or you take a day off and uh, go away from your home and, you know, stay away from your spouse. And then you come back and you think, gosh, am I lucky? Excellent. Yeah. Um, really enjoyed this guest. Thanks for coming. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, bye.